Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 288 with Chris DeFerio. Chris is a latte art champion and coffee guru who works with managers and owners and employees in coffee shops. As a result, he's collected a whole lot of insight into what it takes to lead folks in their first real job or career job, as well as leading folks in chaotic, high-stress, high-motion, high-turnover environments. So you'll learn one. The best approaches for managing first-timers. Two, how to offer feedback so it's received well. And three, tips to stay sane and focused in the chaotic environment. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F288. Now here is Chris's scoop. Chris DeFerio is the host and producer of the Keys to the Shop podcast. I've been on it. It's really good. He lives in Louisville, Kentucky with his wife and son and has been in the professional coffee service biz for 17 years. He provides training, consultations, and wisdom to coffee owners, managers, and employees across the world. His podcast is dedicated to the success of coffee shops and the professionals that make it happen. So big thanks to Chris for sharing some time with us and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. Here is Chris. Chris, thanks so much for joining us here at the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Well, I'm honored to be on your show. I really love it. And I'm looking forward to talking about uh, this subject today. Oh, sure. Well, well, I was honored to be on your show. He's the shop. A yeah. good, good spot. And so folks, check that out. Uh, but first, I want to talk about you being a champion in latte art. <laughs> How does that come about? And what is a latte art contest look like in practice? Well, like we can define the terms. Well, I work in coffee and, you know, in coffee and specialty coffee in particular, there's this thing where you steam milk so that the foam is tight enough and flows enough to be able to form ribbons on the surface of beverages, specifically espresso drinks. And you can see, you know, rosettas, what we call leaves, hearts, designs like that usually symmetrical leaf slash heart designs on the tops of coffees. It's it's actually pretty popular and so popular now, weirdly, you'll see it on like international delight creamers for, you know, they'll hire a barista to do a heart and they'll use it in their marketing. So that's latte art. So milk art is latte is Italian for milk. So we have competitions for these types of things, of course, because we got to entertain ourselves. And so... (laughs) And, and there's money on the line. And, and I won my first one back in like 2004. And I ended up winning three or two times after that. So three times total, a latte art champion. And it just sounds really funny to say. But the skill involved in it is one of just becoming sort of familiar with what the uh, two liquids do when they meet in the cup. And it's important. It's I don't want to downplay it too much because a well-presented coffee is is one that you'll talk to your friends about, which means repeat business. So it does, it translates into something practical and it's fun to do. Well, I want to know what are the game-changing winning designs <laughs> that, that capture the judges' hearts? Well, speaking as a judge, I, I like uh, run a competition now. I'm uh, with Coffee Fest trade shows and I'm, I've been a longtime judge before. I'm back again leading the Latier competition. Uh, as a judge, head judge, and there's a lot of things we look for 
my designs when I won were basically variations on a, a leaf pattern that involved a lot of layers from the outside of the cup into the middle. So just a nice base and I'm speaking in coffee terms. Uh, symmetry is really important. Um, striking contrast between the brown of the coffee and the white of the milk is also very important. In the competition, we judge on speed and also uh, a general kind of flexible category, depending on the judge of aesthetic beauty. So those are some of the categories we look for. So there's there's some game-changing designs out there where people will do multiple different designs in the cup at the same time. I was one of the people, old guy in coffee, that kind of pushed some of those designs out there into the, the industry. And now it's really just about perfecting. Uh, there's not a ton of brand new stuff, just variations on classics, as far as I can tell. Well, do you have some photos we could see in the show notes? Oh, yeah. I'll send you some of mine, and I'll send you some of the um, winningest uh, baristas examples. That's good. Well, I'm trying to imagine because you don't have a lot of space to work with and I guess it can't get too out there, you know, in terms of this is a portrait of of a person who is is running on the beach, right? Oh, yeah. Well, it does in some ways. It does because people do one of two types of latte art. You have etching, which uses a tool to draw a design like you're describing. You theoretically could do that. The drink might be cold by the time you're done, and it might not taste great. I don't know what they're using for drawing with, but we do free pour latte art predominantly. I think that's in competition. I think maybe a more respected version of latte art. So there's two types of uh, latte art. There's free pour and there's etching. So etching is just using a tool. So you could draw that. You could draw yourself in a cup of coffee if you really wanted to, but uh, we do free pour latte art. So there's no tools involved, just the flow of milk. Cool. So you are a coffee master and professional, and you you share some of that in your podcast, Keys to the Shop. What's that all about? Well, Keys to the Shop I've had for the last year or so, back in January 2017, is a podcast that I I run collecting uh, best practices, essentially, from the industry to help people. My tagline of the show is to give insights and inspiration and tools to people who work in retail, especially coffee retail. And my audience is built, is made up of like owners, baristas, managers, people who would one day want to own a coffee bar. And we, we bring in not only just industry experts to talk about workflow behind the bar, like how to build a drink quickly and well, or conflict resolution and things like that. We bring in outside experts as well, authors of books dealing with management or uh, like I said, conflict resolution is, is one. I had Tom Henschel of The Look and Sound of Leadership uh, did an episode on the podcast about conflict resolution, which translates into whatever industry you want it to because you're working with people. So the point is, I want to provide a, a really focused podcast to equip my industry with the tools they need to succeed from, and, and tell the stories of people who have succeeded in the industry as well. Very cool. All right. Well, so now when we talk about some of these management issues, the one thing we were discussing is that you have lots of experience and and see lots of coffee shop owners doing leadership of folks who who have their first job. You know, maybe they are are interns, maybe they're in college or or they've recently graduated. And so I thought it would be great to really dig into your wisdom on on this point. So maybe you could orient us first of all, you know, how does managing folks in, in their first job substantially differ 
from those who have maybe just even one or two or three years under their belt? Well, I think the way it's different is that the structure under which they're used to operating is just alien and different. I like to think about if, if they've come from an, you know, a school environment where there are things set up for them to go to, there are classes, you're not really having to think about it. In fact, you're part of a group. There's not a whole lot of individual attention in most cases. And so by and large, I'd say once you're behind the bar and a lot depends on you individually, there, there's kind of this deer in the headlights. There's just so much to take in. It's, it's not necessarily unique to them, but it's, I think it's times 10 with somebody who's not used to being on display and being the focus and individual attention that a manager has on them because that manager is responsible for the owner's business and the business is on the line. And they understand that responsibility, but don't necessarily know how to function under that weight. And so sometimes it it does feel like you're drinking from a fire hose and they can act that way. So there's a lot of things that you need to t- bear in mind when you're managing somebody who doesn't have a lot of employment experience, even if they've had some, like a, a summer job, a job that's a full-time job, even if their first, like, quote-unquote, real job is quite different. And so how you approach them as a manager has to has to bear that in mind. Well, and I'd love for you to expand a little bit upon, we talk about the, the deer in the headlights or the, the overwhelm or, or the reactions of the new employee. Could you, you know, share a little bit there in terms of, I imagine some of them are probably jarring and not what you want to see. So could you no. maybe highlight a few of those? Maybe there'll be some, some twinkles of recognition from listeners to say, oh, okay, okay. Maybe I should have a, a touch more patience with that at first. Sure. So I'd say a good way to recognize this, or let's just say the, a common way to uh, recognize that you're dealing with somebody who's under you know, that kind of situation is, is that, like I said, deer in the headlights, but we, in the restaurant industry, they call them pan shakers or people who would start cleaning something, then it doesn't need to be cleaned. They're just looking for something to do. There is just a general uh, lack of awareness, the peripheral awareness, uh, even though you're in a busy cafe none of it really affects you much. <laughs> and, and it should, and it's odd that it doesn't because there's so much stimulus going on. You don't know what to focus on. And so I think a manager who's in that situation needs to be able to have a strong hand of guidance on what is it that they should be doing in that moment. Uh, having a good onboarding process, for example, is a great way to kind of counteract the confusion and the the shock of being in an environment where now we really are relying on you to make this rush of customers work or this cafe work. And so when you say manager here, the manager is the person who is the the first real job person kind of working for and reporting to the owner. Is that how you conceptualize mm-hmm. this? Yeah. Okay. Gotcha there. So in, indeed intriguing. So there's a whole lot of stimuli and it seems like folks in that position where they're unaccustomed to it may just sort of start just doing something, even though that mm-hmm. something is not at all the right thing. Any other kind of key symptoms or behaviors you notice? I would say emotional is another one. There is, in any case where somebody is under that kind of pressure, there's going to be overly emotional responses to things that are just commonplace work-related tasks that 
you and I, having been through the ringer, maybe for, for years or at least some experience, might not take it personally. But I say taking things personally is one of the symptoms that I would see is like, okay, this is, they maybe weren't expecting it. I know I felt that way when I had my first job, uh, which was in a grocery store, just stocking things in freezers and fridges and milk cartons and whatnot. The pressure was just so great to perform that you just kind of took everything to heart. And there's really no stopping that. It's almost a rite of passage, I think, when you're, when you have your first job. But where it could go south, I think, is when a manager then takes them taking it personally, personally. <laughs> and then it, it kind of goes off the rails. Oh, that, that is interesting. So could you maybe paint a picture there in terms of an example where, where you've seen this, this happen mm-hmm. with folks either in uh, some of the shops that you've worked with or consulted for in, in terms of making it all come together? Well, okay. So... I would probably just uh, use an example of when I was uh, a trainer and I had some experience in coffee. When we brought on new baristas, this was this was actually an example of one of my failures in that I was so confident, having some experience, I just had too strong of a hand in my my management. But the individual was performing the job. They were performing the job okay, but not really to my standards as a manager. And, you know, it's kind of arrogant at the time anyway, but tamping is an example of something we do. We press the coffee down into a filter so that it could be extracted. And I was noticing that the tamping was off or lopsided so that it wouldn't extract properly. And I brought it up in a way that maybe in hindsight wasn't the greatest, but they took it so personally that you know there you got a problem with my yeah. tamping bro how could you notice that from where you're standing and or it, there was there was a lot of pushback and i realized what i had done was i stepped on the only security that they had because they had just been trained you know and by the manager at that store and what i was doing was coming in and essentially removing the only security that they had without care for what it would do to the rest of what was built on that foundation. <laughs> and so now we say the only security you mean, like he's coming from a perspective of tamping is the one thing that I have nailed. Well, but yeah, is that what you mean? Well, if you call into question parts of what they know to be true, then you might, be, might as well be calling into question the entire thing. So if my tamping is off, maybe my milk is off. And if my milk is off, what am I doing here? Being a barista? What am I, you know, maybe I was taught wrong. Why am I, I'm not ready for this. Your mind can kind of go a million miles an hour down the wrong path. And it all kind of stemmed from a non-empathetic approach to an issue that could have been resolved by uh, some other means that reinforced what they had learned or added to rather than stripping it away simply to be right. Oh, intriguing. So I'd love to hear in retrospect, how would you address this issue? Because you can't have a suboptimal tamp at the end (laughs) of the day, right, Chris? No, I don't think you can. In the moment, I either could have, I think this would have been the best way to do it, is to investigate what kind of training the person had before assuming what they had first. So if if I had questions for the manager as to how much training the person had, I should have asked instead of addressing it with the individual first, 
I should have just let it go because by the time I got there, they had probably already been making drinks that way uh, in for hours, if not days. Mm. And my stepping in in the middle of making drinks for customers is not going to solve it in their mind. It might solve my personal need to sort of get my fidgety, like, oh, you're not doing that right out there into her world. <laughs> but it, it really didn't accomplish what I wanted it to long term. So I think having a more patient view of that situation and allowing myself to shoulder the burden of having unresolved tension rather than just kind of chucking that tension right onto, you know, what was happening in the moment, if that makes sense. Like I, as a manager or a leader, there's this tension. I mean, you would have that you want to see people do something right. But sometimes you have to let them do it wrong a little bit longer in order to wait for the right opportunity to show them in a way that's effective. And so it forces you to question, do I just want to talk or do I want to affect change? Intriguing. So then what might be some indicators that uh, this is the right time? I'd say when things are more calm, when people are in a good mood and when you are not upset. <laughs> because you might be responsible for the bottom line of your company. You have to know yourself well enough to know when you cannot sound like a jerk or be passive aggressive or give somebody the, you know, the feedback, you know, crap sandwich with the critique and the praise. <laughs> there is a bit of self-knowledge that's needed so to know how you sound, first of all, when's the right time for you to do it calmly. And then when, like I said, when things are calm in the store, when there is a time that talking about technique is brought up, in fact, that's a way. Hopefully you have mechanisms or systems of communication in place where, where feedback lives, like a one-on-one -on -one every week with a manager or ongoing training session. Those are perfect times and require forethought as a operator to say, you need, you're going to have these conversations with people. So where do those conversations live? They can't just be invented on the spot. They have to have a place for your peace of mind in the security of the barista. So I'd say rather than indicators, maybe just dial back even more and say, have I built a system in my shop or my business that allows for a safe space for feedback, both from me to the barista or employee and from the employee to me to critique me? Oh, thank you. Well, now we use the phrase safe space. So <laughs> I'm thinking about uh, the South Park. That's the name of the show where they, they did the song, my safe space. And, and I want to touch upon the word millennials. I guess I am one, but in a previous episode, we had Lee Carher say like 72% of millennials don't like the word <laughs> millennial. They don't want to be called a millennial because there's so much like baggage and, and, and negative associations with it. So I, I'd love it. The more that you can be sort of fact-based, experience-based, research-oriented to this, to what extent is there something real when it mm -hmm. comes to the difference in managing millennials or, or folks who are, are fresh out of college? Are, are they still millennials or are they, are they the next one yet? I think it's maybe. Maybe it's Gen Y. I'm not sure. But Gen Y is the same thing. So what's real and what's just a, a bunch of stuff that people cook up to to sell books or to <laughs> try to stereotype and sort of offload responsibility? Yeah, it's a good question because 
we like to categorize, you know, part of the human mind is all about this goes in this section of my brain and this goes in the other. And if we need to understand people, it's easier to have a sorting mechanism. And so that's what these names start to become. And and in no other time in history, especially with the rise of the internet, do we have as many, uh, as much access to articles that kind of form our thinking towards people before we even meet them or know them in reality. So the reality of millennials, I think, is simply that they are young. <laughs> and I don't know that there's that much of a difference outside of the world they interact with. They're not not humans, and they have <laughs> the same drive for success and love and acceptance and to inter, you know interact with the world around them and and uh, you know they have the same idea that they want to change the world the way that any other generation did. So I think millennials as a group have been given a bad rap by people who don't want to take responsibility for leading millennials. Okay. Yeah. So uh, on the show, I had Bruce Tulgan, who is the author of the book, uh, which I think every manager should read, um, is the book is called It's Okay to Be the Boss. I bought that for all of my managers in a store I worked at, and they all agreed it's a fantastic book, practical. He is the author also. He works for his company is called uh, Rainmaker Thinking, and they authored this incredible long-term study on the workplace opinion of millennials toward management. And what they found is essentially that millennials want leadership. They want to be told how to succeed in the workplace, and they actually are looking for people to, as the book that Bruce wrote says, to be the boss. And that's they say in the book that there is an undermanagement epidemic, uh, not a micromanagement one. Uh, in other words, people are abdicating their responsibility to be leaders within an organization. And uh, millennials, I think, are just based on this study in my own experience, like I said, they're people who, who want to do a good job. And when somebody says to you, I want to come in your company and deliver a ton of value, and what do I do? Where do I sign up? And they're eager. If you look on that with disdain, there's a lot of issues there. You need to be prepared to help that person succeed. So I view millennials as eager and uh, will not take a lack of clarity for an answer. So the mystery of just figuring it out on your own, hey, we have Google. I mean, that's, that's gone. Like figuring it out on your own looks more like YouTube than just hacking away at it. So yeah, millennials, I think, have been given a bad rap, and they are young people looking to be led and then to lead themselves. They want to make a difference in the world, and uh, we have an opportunity in jobs like coffee that are historically transient jobs. They're not the jobs that they're going to have for the rest of their lives to shape people for the career that they actually are going to be spending a lot of time in. So managing first-time people, uh, first-time employees, uh, especially young ones, as impressionable as they are, they have a ton of energy and they have a ton of vision to contribute to a company if you're up for the challenge of continuing to actually work in your company. So that doesn't sound unique at all to millennials in terms of, you know, if you're young and inexperienced, figure it out isn't 
great leadership management guidance at, at that sort of stage in a person's development. I mean, you might say figure it out in a nicer way, which was, why don't you take a, a rough draft at a plan of attack and we'll sync up in a day? I guess that's a, maybe a, a nicer version of figured out. <laughs> You know, I'm not 100% abdicating my responsibility for getting to the bottom of this thing, but I would like you to take the the first approach there. So, well, cool. Well, so then you've got some some takes on how one manages expectations optimally in the first real job environment. Yeah. So managing expectations is is a great place to start because you know I was just touching on how we as an older generation myself turning 40 here shortly, have a responsibility to manage ourselves first so that we can lead others. And that means if we have expectations of people that are unreasonable and are secretly based on our desire to just not have to do as much as we actually have to, then we need to deal with that so we don't pass on dysfunction. In today's day and age, there's a ton of leadership dysfunction and leaders in restaurants and coffee bars and politics are under fire. And so all eyes are on people who have authority and power. And we need to be able to have some kind of forethought about the people we're bringing into our organization and stop being surprised by what happens when we bring young people into an organization. You can't really be effective as a leader or as a company if you're constantly just scratching your head and complaining and surprised by something that you knew was going to happen. So embrace it, prepare yourself for it, and be the leader that's necessary for uh, what you're going to inherit. Okay, so the managing expectations there, you're talking about what it's fair for you to expect of someone who's who's new or young or inexperienced from, from the get-go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they're going to make mistakes, no doubt. When you onboard somebody, in coffee, for instance, a lot of us have labs. And we have labs for a reason, because we don't want people experimenting on the customer. Or we have shadow shifts, for instance, where you are on with the manager and they are watching you to make sure that you are performing in the critical areas. However, you don't want to rob people of their failures. You don't want people to only do exactly what you say in every case. You want to see them spill milk or you want to see them kind of strain to figure something out and not just jump in and not let that muscle develop. Because then you will never be truly confident in that person's aha moment because they could fake it. They could just say like, oh yeah, I understand now. But when you're gone, because they didn't develop the, the muscle of understanding through failure, then it's just going to crumble under the pressure, especially if it's one of their first jobs, like we were talking about earlier. So having a lab for another company might look like just a entry-level position within the company where consequences of failure, not dire, you're not going to pass it on to your big accounts, but you have somebody there that can walk them through the process and explain as failures are made, how to do the job from A to Z. Yes. That's great. Don't rob them of their failures. A nice turn of a phrase there. And so when you say a lab, can you help, help, can you help me visualize? I'm, I'm imagining a lab coat in a white uh, <laughs> yeah, room yeah. And, and benches. That's exactly we- right. That's what we do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we actually recreate, so to speak, the bar, the coffee bar. So it's like a micro coffee bar. 
in sometimes it's behind glass and other times it's just hidden in the back corner. It's not usually the prettiest place, but it's got an espresso machine, a brewer. It's got a ta- you know a couple tables, and you schedule sessions with baristas when they are new employees or existing employees that need work on one particular area. You schedule some time in the lab to work on your tamping, to work on understanding this particular policy. A lot of meetings are held in labs. Yeah, so... A lab for a coffee bar, I think, is critical in the equivalent in any organization. Like, where is the training take place? Helps kind of anchor the idea. Like, yeah, I'm here to learn right now in this in this space, and we can just bang around in here, and nothing is going to happen in the outside world except I'm going to learn and bring what I learn to that outside world. It's interesting when you describe the lab, it conjures to mind almost like a, like a movie montage. Like there's, there's music playing and (laughs) someone is like failing repeatedly and spilling it all over themselves. And, you know, and then the wise mentor is frustrated, but you know, sticks it out until there is a, a maestro coming out on the other side. (laughs) Yeah. This is very much like Rocky. Uh, <laughs> Ivan Drago versus Rocky lifting logs, log house. That's what, yeah, that's what we, <laughs> it's, it's an approximation. <laughs> that's great. Okay. Well, so then we talked about not robbing people of their failures, managing the expectations, giving some protections so there's not dire consequences if things go awry. I'd like you to also kind of unpack a bit. You've got some takes on. When it comes to the follow through, not just saying, hey, do this, but what comes after the hey, do this? Yeah, this is a super hard one. And it is one of the things that erodes trust the most between direct reports and managers or baristas and managers, however you want to phrase it. When you tell somebody to do something and they do it, let's say they do it well and it happens, except they do it well and they know, but nobody sees it. That is going to uh, demoralize the individual because Nobody is there to see their their victories. And they could get some satisfaction out of it for sure. So if you're on the bar and you are not having follow through from your manager, what that looks like is is like you said, just do this via text message. You get a text message or an email that says to do it this way. You need to have the presence of the manager there to follow up with you in order to either correct you or praise you, to to guide you or affirm you, and. The present leadership is a good phrase for this. A shop I worked at used the phrase present leadership because oftentimes what we have is a secondary culture form around this abdication of of leadership to follow through. So this happens for us. It happens on closing shifts. When management is home, they'll try to get themselves on a nine-to-five schedule, and then the closing shift is there by themselves. And what you'll find is that it's kind of like a different culture and they don't have the kind of contact with the leadership as they, uh, their counterparts in the morning do. The difference is that the people in the morning get the benefit of getting to see the manager every day. So there is a natural built-in opportunity for follow-through. You can't really judge an employee's performance if you haven't observed their performance in a consistent way. So when you give them a raise and you tell them they're doing a good job, but they know that you haven't actually followed through and seen how they're doing, if they need help, and been there along the process, they know you don't know what you're talking about. And it's hollow. And so you erode trust. They don't 
they don't trust you when you say good job because they know you haven't even seen them do their job. That's part of what I mean by follow through. For managers who who really want to be there for their employees, it's going to take a lot of work up front, but it builds momentum in the future. So where you might have to schedule yourself to come in during a time where you normally don't come in to the store. Maybe it's a closing shift for coffee bar examples. Just to make yourself known, to ask how things are going, see if there's any questions, observe them in action. Do that for a week or so, two or three times a week. And that person will get the drift that you are concerned about their progress and you're building rapport with that individual and following through on the thing that you said they should do or how they should do it, et cetera. That makes sense. It's interesting. It sounds like this sounds pretty, I guess, fundamental and yes, but of course leaders should do that. And yet at the same time, I think there is a healthy opposition force that would say, oh my gosh, Chris, that is just too much work. Why do I have to do all this handholding? Come on, we're grownups here. (laughs) Well, yeah, that grownups who can plan ahead of time, like we said, manage your expectations. Well, part of the expectation is that you're going to have to spend some extra time with people who are new. And I think the thing that really throws people is the minutia of their job as manager. Because so much of our job in management has to do with reacting to situations and putting out fires. And if you never really get that under control and don't have control of your own schedule, keeping on human relationships on top of just ordering these other things for the the office and responding to emails from people who may or may not want to buy your coffee or your product, there's no room left for the people that you hired. And there's this weird relief. You come in and they're doing fine. You're like, Oh, hey, oh, how are you doing? How are you doing? Good. Are they taking care of you over here? Great. And then you just talk, you walk away. Now you've abdicated your responsibility as a leader to the people they're working with who have become these sort of surrogate managers for you because you can't get it together with your your schedule. So there, there is, it all kind of comes back to the leadership and what you expect from yourself. And it all kind of comes back to leadership having their stuff together so that they can actually help other people form their careers and their understanding and their, their skill sets. Now that example you use in terms of how are you doing? Are they taking good care of you? That's an example of abdication. Can you expand on that? Yeah. So not in all cases, I think, but I see it a lot of times in coffee bars where you throw people onto a bar and you hope that the most senior barista there will kind of show them the ropes, right? And, you know, show them all this stuff about the POS and then show them this other thing over here too. And, and by the way, I just remembered, can you show them this? Now that might be delegation if it's done with clear intent and structure and always done that way, if that's purposeful. But oftentimes it's just plan B or plan C when it comes to what the manager maybe ideally wanted or found out that they don't have enough time to you know spend to walk this person through the POS system, the, the register. So when I say it's abdication, I mean, naturally, when you're entering into a office or a service industry or whatever it is, the manager is the person you understand to be the the source of knowledge, the one who is going to help you understand how things how things are, at least at first. But when you never get that and they're just the person that has you sign your tax forms 
and then they just kind of throw you on bar, but then show up at your review. It just feels like, why, why are you even here? My coworkers should be reviewing me uh, because <laughs> they're the ones who taught me, corrected me, were there with me during that really crazy rush where we all burned ourselves. <laughs> you know, there's rapport. And managers oftentimes miss out on building that rapport because they unintentionally, I'd say in most cases, give away their opportunity to build those relationships. Well, that's good. And I, I kind of finally want to get your take on when it comes to retail or, or coffee environment, there are times where you mentioned the rush in a realm of, of crowds and, and chaos and a whole lot happening real fast. Sure. What are some pro tips just for, for keeping your cool and your, your sanity and focus about you with all the stimuli? <laughs> Two things. One, have workflow already in place. If you own a bar, if you manage a system where you have to deliver a result, you have to have a workflow. And that workflow has to actually be taking into account different situations that you could come up against. For us, let's say you have a menu of 15 items with four different variations on those items. Okay, so you got to practice all of the ways that people can alter those drinks. And maybe there's ways that they're going to, you know, how, how, how is it going to be in the worst scenario? And what do we do? What's the plan? Too many people just cross that bridge when they come to it. And if it's on fire, they don't cross it at all. The workflow is a critical one. And that was one of our first episodes, actually, on the show, Keys to the Shop, with my friend Ryan Soder on mastering workflow. The other part is managing yourself emotionally. You need to detach, essentially. Not, not in a like robotic way, but if you're working the workflow, if you're working behind the bar and you have a, a line out the door, and you know you're doing your best, there's no reason, logically, to stress out. You can't go any faster, and everybody understands that. And, you know, they keep coming every day. So they know, they see, they have eyes, they understand what's going on. And somehow, what happens when we forget that, we try to rush the process. We don't fall into a rhythm. And when we do that, we don't do the other thing, which I'll add a third, is communication. Our communication can either come from a place of fear and insecurity, or it can come from a place of we're in this, we're in this together, we're doing the best we can, and we're going to lean into the pressure rather than trying to run away from it. I'll give an example for, you know, there are times when I have personally been really stressed out on the register. And when I'm that way, what I like to do is... I don't know how to describe it, but I just kind of smile to myself and I over kind of exaggerate my hospitality as a way of reminding myself what I'm doing here. I don't go goofy or anything, but I turn an inward switch. And I think it's important for people to figure out what's my approach to a chaotic workplace environment and how will I pull myself away from that, observe it as an outsider. Uh, so to speak, and not become out of control emotionally, but lean into the fact that this is what's going on. And it's not going to define us. We're not going to let the shift run us. We're going to run the shift. That's a good way to just remember it. Lovely. Well, Chris, tell me anything else you want to make sure to highlight before we hear about some of your favorite things. Yeah. I just want to encourage everybody who works with young people and transient employees, it kind of goes hand in hand, that they are training up 
a future generation of leaders and owners and managers, people who will influence the course of history. And it sounds really like dramatic to say it that way. But every person who you know, who you read a biography about, who's inspirational, worked at a deli, worked at a restaurant or a coffee bar at some point, uh, maybe not everyone, but they had jobs that were kind of what they might consider menial, but have had lessons that shaped them in the dish pit, in the mop closet, in a one-on-one with a manager, kind of like your favorite teacher in elementary school. So our responsibility to actually take up a mantle of leadership and lead young people well in these jobs is really, really critical. And it's all about relationships and allowing yourself to be vulnerable while at the same time being a strong uh, leader that will help shape the next generation. Lovely. Thank you. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Yeah. So I think my favorite quote comes from uh, David White. David White is an English poet. And I think the quote is, you must learn one thing. The world was made to be free in. Give up all other worlds except the one in which you belong. So his book, if I could recommend it, is called Crossing the Unknown Sea. And it's a kind of a philosophy on vocation as a way of becoming, a journey into meaning through your work. And so I, I really highly recommend that book. Oh, great. Thank you. And how about a favorite tool, something that helps you be awesome at your job? I don't have a, okay, tool would be just pen and paper. Honestly, that's, I don't really find, I don't thrive in digital environments as much as I thought I would. And I do have things, I I love my high-end drawing pens and special graph paper notebooks for organizing my thoughts. I'm not full into bullet journaling or anything, but I do like to brain dump onto paper and organize myself that way. And sometimes it makes it into my um, reminders on my phone or something like that. But more often than not, I'm, I'm trying to write something down. Well, thank you. And how about a favorite habit? So uh, I, I guess a favorite habit of mine, uh, besides coffee, would be which is a great habit. It's very healthy for you. I try to get up early. It's something I started doing a couple of years ago. Actually started to try to adopt a, a way to kind of embrace the day. And I know this is not unique to me, but when I started doing it, it really turned my world upside down that I could actually sort of start my day well by just getting up early and stretching and drinking a lot of water and thinking, including things like morning pages uh, is, is a huge one stream of consciousness uh, because I don't get a lot of time, especially at a coffee bar, to create and to express. You know, you're always reacting to outside situations. So it's nice to have some space where you can set your trajectory internally and then embrace the day. And tell me, is there a particular nugget that you share that really seems to connect and resonate and get folks quoting yourself back to you? Yeah. There is something that I I used to say in talks, and I think I should bring it back, and that is that the customer has been hurt in the past by coffee. So 
<laughs> the customer has had some kind of a traumatic experience in a coffee bar and they bring that experience in with them. So we have to approach them from a position of owning the stuff that our industry sort of did to them and earn, earn back their trust. <laughs> well, I'm yeah. so intrigued. I can't recall an experience <laughs> of my own. Are we talking about hot spills or, or, or what do you mean? I, I mean, emotionally, like, <laughs> like you go into a specialty coffee shop and oftentimes what you find is maybe the barista is not as welcoming as you thought they should be for the price point of the coffee. We promise a special experience a lot of times. And when somebody walks in, the expectation is set so high by the marketing that the actual reality of the experience is disappointing. And so knowing that people are sort of accustomed to dealing with disappointment when it comes to something that's so hyped as especially coffee with all these latte art, flowery drinks and whatnot, we kind of have to approach it with some empathy and realize that A, it's not personal. B, let's make that up to you. Let's make this the best experience that you could possibly have. All right. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Well, I would definitely uh, recommend they go to keystotheshop.com and the podcast, the same name on iTunes. It's just keys to the shop on Instagram and Twitter as well. And uh, those are the best places. Uh, my email is chris, C-H-R-I-S, at keystotheshop.com. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for those seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Be patient with yourself. Be patient with others. And take a look at the big picture on a regular basis. And learn to be happy with the work that you've already done and uh, hopeful for the work that you're going to accomplish. Awesome. Well, Chris, thanks so much for taking this time. Lots of fun. I wish you tons of luck in your coffee adventures. And <laughs> you are a champion in more ways than, than just latte art. Oh, I really appreciate that. Well, thanks for having me on the show. It was really fun. I really appreciate Chris's take about building in that mechanism, that system, that safe space so that feedback can be received well, because it makes a world of difference as opposed to highlighting it right in the moment of battle when you know things are going on it may not be received it could even be counterproductive to what you're going for so i thought that was quite wise and to be thoughtful and planful about the the when and the where and the how that gets delivered so it can make maximum impact so if you want to check out the show notes the transcript the links to items we've referenced it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep288 if you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe. You'll hear from our next guest, Cassandra Frangos. She is laying out pathways that are commonly associated with folks becoming CEOs and executives. How that unfolds? Until next time, peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Thank you.